Hello everyone, I'm Ed Kemp and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast series where we share the stories of athlete career transition to life after sport. Today I'm joined by retired Wallaby Rugby Union representative and former Super Rugby star Alistair Campbell. Over his professional sporting career spanning more than a decade, Alistair played over 50 Super Rugby matches for the Waratahs, Brumbies and Melbourne Rebels, a heap of first grade rugby in Sydney and 24 matches for Montpellier on the Mediterranean coast of France. However, the highlight of Alistair's rugby career, no doubt, was his four Wallaby Test caps, the first debuting against France in 2005. He also captained Australia A in 2007, and his on- and off-field leadership was a feature of his involvement in the game he loves, and it's been a feature of his career since he transitioned to life after sport. Away from rugby, Alistair graduated from the University of Technology, Sydney, with a Bachelor of Property Economics, and balanced his professional playing commitments by working part-time in the property industry. Alistair has built a successful career off the field, and whilst his transition has been successful, there were plenty of bumps along the way, as we're about to find out. And I started asking him what the pressure was like when he knew his playing career was coming to an end. Yeah, I guess it was a concerning time. Um, I'd just relocated back from Europe to, to Melbourne, and I had a young family and a third child on the way, actually, and knew that you know the responsibility of post-career was was imminent, so... I very much was in planning mode for for what was next for me and although I'd completed some studies I was I still had a, a real sense of concern uncertainty um, and just not knowing um, and I guess that's the the challenge for a lot of athletes is that you, you get asked that question quite a lot when you are in your twilight years as to as to what's next and and I guess it's it's a sense of fear and potentially, maybe a little bit of embarrassment when you actually can't refine or you don't know the exact answer. So it's certainly a, you know, a concerning time. Um, I was excited um, at the same time of um, you know, having, I guess, um, some issues with, uh, with not knowing, but I was excited about the next chapter. Um, always back myself going into a new journey or a new challenge. So yeah, it was an interesting time, but but with good people and good guidance and making measured decisions, um, you know, I, I came through okay. And that fear that you mentioned, Al, is quite interesting because you're an individual that obviously got a degree in property management uh, as, as part of your, I suppose, preparation for life after sport, even though that was, as I understand it, quite significantly before you finished retirement or finished retiring from sport. What were the sorts of things that, that helped you, A, understand that you needed to have a plan for when you finished. And even though you had the plan and even though you had the background of the education side of things, that fear factor must have been pretty disconcerting when it came to actually working out what you're going to do next. Absolutely. I guess um, it really hit home for me when I was living in Europe. So I left Australian rugby and um, had a wonderful opportunity here um, with a couple of the super rugby teams and, and left the Brumbies on, on great terms and was really excited about the adventure that I was taking my young family on moving to Europe and 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 it was that we had a we had a wonderful time but um you know being in a in a foreign country and knowing that um you know my I, I had um fewer years left in my sporting career I very much had in the back of my mind what's next um and I guess I was just incredibly fortunate with timing um, that the Super Rugby franchise or the Super Rugby competition expanded and, and Melbourne were issued a licence. So it gave um, 
it gave me an opportunity to relocate home and in consideration at the back end of that French contract as to what was next, um, there was no alternative but to return home because I was already in the mindset as to what was next. And that's not to say that I wasn't committed to fulfilling uh, the contract that I had on offer from Melbourne. It was I need to be back in Australia and obviously this is where we're going to live our life and um, and put some rigour around what's next for me because I very much knew entering that contract with the Rebels that my playing days would come to a close at you know the completion of those two years if I got through those two years. Um, so I was lucky to incorporate, I guess, that conversation with within the negotiation process. Um, I guess I was fortunate that there was an appetite from the club to have um, some sound leaders or some proven leaders uh, return to Australian Super Rugby. So um, I was lucky enough to have had that experience um, on on a number of levels throughout my playing career. So, um, you know, it wasn't just about playing and, and fulfilling the contract and I was absolutely committed to doing that, but it was also in any downtime that I had was working out what was next and reconnecting with a network of people that I was fortunate enough to be exposed to, you know, throughout the eight or nine years prior to that time. And that reconnection is critically important. And I think from what I can understand, the rugby world especially is brilliant at, at, you know, looking after their own. And the network is clearly very, very strong from a business community point of view. Moving to Melbourne, born and bred in Sydney, or certainly played a lot of your grade rugby and super rugby in New South Wales and Canberra, how, what were the sorts of things that you did when you relocated to Melbourne to proactively let club hierarchy know that, you know what, I'm actually going to be playing here, I'll commit to this, however, I need to start thinking about what's next? Yes, it's um, again a, a timing issue. I mean, with European competition finishing um, in the June, I came back and I guess I had the, a buffer of a few months um, to start and put some planning around relocating back to Melbourne. So we we came back to Sydney and um, and I had about three months and I was training based out of Sydney as were a number of the players that were signing with the Rebels at the time um, and we had you know some facilitators and strength and conditioning coaches based up there. But I was also reaching out to, um, you know, I, I guess a broader business network, um, ex, uh, f- well, friends that I went through Sydney University with, um, went through UTS with, um, guys that I'd played club rugby with um, and you know, I, I guess I had a focus of um, of property, considering that I did a property economics degree. But um, it was just that reconnection process, and it was just a an honest conversation with a number of people that had influence, and let them know that um, I was obviously relocating to Melbourne and would love the opportunity if they had anyone that they felt it would be worthwhile me discussing career transition with. So I had that dialogue with probably half a dozen people that. I have a huge amount of respect for um, off the back of my club rugby team in Sydney, which is Sydney University. And, um, you know, you're right in saying that the network is is powerful. And I think if you're humble enough to approach certain individuals that have your best interests at heart, they're very much prepared to refer or make introductions that's going to support you with decision-making for what's next. So off the back of uh, half a dozen conversations in Sydney, that created introductions to those people's network here in Melbourne and Victoria and you know it's obviously a responsibility to follow through with that process and 
and I get a lot out of it. I'm, I love meeting people. I love learning from successful people and interacting with people who have been successful in both sport, sports administration and business. Um, so that, that – and it actually creates momentum. So if, if you go about it in the right way and you have some planning and some research around those conversations with the role that those people in, are in, the industry that they're in, the company that they work for and what's happening – broadly with that particular market um, or even what's going on from a macroeconomic point of view and they know that you're committed to the process and that you're um, committed to understanding and learning and you show them the respect then it it opens up a, a huge amount of opportunity for people to make recommendations and suggestions of who's next that you should be discussing this very topic with. And when you go through that planning process had you gone into those conversations with an understanding of where you wanted to be or was that more about the process of discovery which is going to allow you to naturally gravitate to one path or another no i didn't go into them knowing and that's that's part of the challenge i feel with with the transition from elite sport and i've had a lot of conversations with multiple transitioning athletes and that's that's the real um the real problem is that a lot just don't know and i was certainly in that category so the conversation was, um, it was about building knowledge as well. Um, so, you know, I mentioned property, but that's, that's just so broad. You can m- mention any particular sector and, and, it, and roles and businesses. Um, there is, there's so much scope um, and scale with any particular topic. So it's an educational process. And if I look back on all the dialogue and conversations that I had over you know, not just in those two years while I was playing, but certainly the transition process continues well after you finish and you, you're into your first role. It, it continues for a long period. I mean, I still sit here um, today saying that, you know, I feel that, you know, I'm still in a transition phase and I'm seven years out of playing elite sport. Um, so it's a, it, it's, a, it's a journey of discovery. And um, as long as you're open-minded about, um, I guess, learning from all the people that you that you have those conversations with and, um, and and reflecting back on the people that I spoke to, I wish I was more prepared because you get to speak to some incredibly successful, um, uh, you know, industry leaders and off the back of your exposure in professional sport. So um, the preparation piece, I thought that I was somewhat prepared, but I wish I was, um, you know, a lot more prepared. But that, that leveraging is interesting because I know we've spoken previously about the fact that when athletes move from competing to not competing there's a real issue that the people that may be around the club the corporate leaders of the world suddenly forget about you and so the ability to leverage your standing as a sportsman who's actually still competing at a club where or an organization where there are corporate leaders there what are the sorts of things that you would advise athletes who are in that similar position when it comes to actually leveraging the fact that in, you know, for want of a better expression, they're wanted, um, and people are, you know, more disposed to helping them while they're actually within that sort of club environment. You know, the the probably the number one thing um, that I would encourage anyone that's still in that elite space um, and competing in sport, it's you know, it's you need to put some infrastructure around a plan B. You need to be curious around what's next, and you know, be aware that you've got a network and you've got an incredible infrastructure of people around you that are willing to support you on that journey so you need to I mean the plan b part I think um, is incredibly important and I'm a genuine believer that 
if you have a sense of direction away from, um, I guess, your, your current discipline being your elite sport, you're better prepared to deal with the challenges, the adversity that you're faced with while you're competing in elite sport. Just on that with respect to the sense of direction, these days, and I'm, I'm sure you are of a similar view, certainly playing elite rugby, is that there's not a lot of time where you've got playing, you've got preparation, coaching sessions, team meetings, rehab, a whole range of things that goes that go around getting you onto the park every week to win because that's what you're there for. So how do you how do you fit that in to ensure that you can a maintain some balance, b perform on the field, but c look forward to that plan b because we both know that a serious knee, shoulder, all sorts of different injuries across the rugby field, but also whether you're a cyclist, an AFL footballer, or a cricketer, it can come to an end pretty quickly. What are the sorts of things that you would suggest that people do to get themselves in the mindset to actually start thinking about a plan B? Because I would imagine from your experience, literally the day you walked into rugby was the day you started to plan for walking out. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, you know, I think uh, certainly the the demands of elite sport, you, you live in a bubble and the schedules are you know, are incredibly tight and, you know, that's probably a trend that's only continuing. But um, certainly in my experience, you know, I, I did have it as a priority. It was part of my weekly schedule that I knew that I had to commit time to it. So you make it work. Um, and and I think if if you're mature enough to be able to articulate the importance of, of that process um, and you've got a good enough relationship with the infrastructure of coaches that look after you, then they'll realise that it's important to you and will accommodate the need for you to go and spend time doing that. Um, and I certainly was fortunate enough to have that um, with my contract here in Melbourne, So, which is obviously the last two years of my playing career. So I positioned that with them before I'd even signed, saying what does the flexibility look like um, in terms of, you know, generally there's a lighter day during the week. And, and what, does, what was their reaction to that? Because I suspect that that wouldn't necessarily be all that common in elite sport where – You've signed a contract, but you're also saying, "Look, I'm committed." But at the same time, I'm committed to sorting out what's next as well. They were they were very receptive, and they just knew. I mean, I was um, you know 30 turning 31, and I mean they knew that we're at the that I was at the back end of my career, and um, and you know, and they wanted the best out of me while I could fulfil my commitments with Super Rugby. So um, you know, I, I guess any extra duties with you know, extra training or club commitments and the like, um, it, that was going to be more problematic for me physically than um, going out and exploring what's next from a professional point of view. And does that mean that you had the ability then to, A, leverage the contact base that the club had with the club's um, imprimatur, if you like, and sign off? Does Did that allow you then to really take advantage of the fact that you might have a day off a week where they know that you're not going to be at the club they know that you're going to be out there looking. And the second part of that question is, what about your experience with other athletes in the in the in the organisations that you've been with, with respect to that that planning process? Because the planning has come through a number of times in this conversation already, and it's clear that you actually need to have a plan before you go out and start doing it. Yeah. So there's two parts to that. Um, yes, I did have the support, and I had a during the competition season, I had a full day off during the week um, and I committed to myself that that day was solely dedicated to exploring what was next and I was fortunate enough to be to be working 
very much part-time, but spending time with a property syndication group, which I got a huge amount of enjoyment out. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily a 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. kind of role. If, you know, if I got in late, that was completely fine. If I had a rehab session in the morning or I had to go and see a physician for, for whatever reason. Um, but I very much wanted to explore what was next and I committed my time to that. So the second part of your question, Ed, and it's, you know, I guess everyone approaches it differently. You are in a, you know, in a high pressure environment where, you know, results are clearly expected and, and everyone's different in terms of what their release is. And some guys, you know, might want to go and have a surf on their day off or, you know, walk the dog in the park or whatever it might be and, and relax. Um, obviously there's, you know, other activities guys love, you know, console gaming and whatever it might be, but guys just to, to have some downtime. Um, and that's completely fine and you need to do that to get the balance right. Uh, so I, you know, I very much wish and and hope that clubs realise that that is important, but perhaps how could they tie into the more formal part of their weekly, if not monthly, annual structure as to dedicating time that their entire list or group of people or the athletes that they're responsible for, there is some processes around the planning and the exposure and or conversations around what is next. And I mean, I I think that's an interesting point because – I suspect that in your experience there's been a significant amount of spread amongst, if you like, the education standards of athletes. Some would have been educated at private school, some wouldn't have been, some would have been uh, in families that were, you know, that may have had business interests and, and mothers and fathers who were working professionally versus others that, that maybe didn't have that, that luxury or that privilege. So, I mean, what's your experience around, A, having the programs developed, but B, actually you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink it. You can have all the programs there that you like, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the athlete wanting to do it, doesn't it? Absolutely, and and you're never going to solve that problem. Um, you know, people are completely and utterly consumed by, you know, being in the now and fulfilling those lifelong dreams of, you know, being the elite athlete or winning a medal or winning a championship, whatever it might be. Um so you're never going to solve someone considering what's next when they're probably fulfilling a dream they've had that they've had since they were a kid. But um, you know, I think if if clubs are committed and, and nearly most of them are around really competent player welfare and development officers that that are focused on this very topic um, and educated around this topic and the challenges and insights to people that have retired, then. Hopefully there's a light bulb moment um, during someone's career that there is a level of interest, whether it's um, you know exploring their own business opportunity or whether it's building a corporate career or whether it's even you know starting something around a trade or just purely and fundamentally around let's start some basic education to get you some sort of ideas as to what's next. Um, you know a lot of that great work's getting done. I just think there needs to be more detail in the transition process and leveraging some of the insights of a huge complement of people that have been through various programs um, and are left to walk away with with no direction. And this no direction is interesting because we spoke about planning and preparation before, which clearly you've done a lot of. Preparation is one thing. I, I sort of account that to a bit like theory versus practice. You can do all the planning you like, but then when you actually leave the sport, 
I mean, how did you feel? And I mean, you know, what was the actual reality like of stopping being Alistair Campbell, the former Wallaby, former Super Rugby star, to Alistair Campbell, just like every other person in a suit trying to get a job? Because I would imagine there would, even with all the preparation and planning you've done, there's still that fear, probably for a significant period of time, where you go, my God, I'm actually now got to change my life completely and move away from sport into what most people do every day and take for granted. Yeah, it is. A, it's a very overwhelming feeling. And, um, you know, and that's the exit process is, I think, challenging for most. Um, and that's not a detrimental comment to the infrastructure of support and the staffing of whatever the organisation is. I mean, they've got a responsibility to look after, you know, their current group of elite players um, or the complement of elite players that they've got under um, under contract at that given time. So they don't have the scale and capacity to be looking after all the retired athletes but do you think, year on year. If I interrupt there, do you think that they should, though, from the point of view of where's the duty of care from your perspective on an individual, let's say there's an 18 or 19-year-old boy or girl that goes into a professional sporting program, comes out at 30, and all they're focused on is being the best they can possibly be in that sport. I'm always fascinated by the fact that there are so many issues that happen in transition that you've got the here and now. You mentioned that before that there are people are only looking forward by you know almost day to day, week to week, as opposed to five, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty years into the future. Because we know that you know an athlete is going to be living for fifty, at least fifty years after they finish retire when they retire from sport, and that fifty years has got to be got to be filled up with something. And you'd like to think it's been going to be filled up with something meaningful. And something fulfilling that replaces that void of sport. Um, there is a duty of care, and there are, you know, there are a number of people that are responsible for, you know, the welfare of that individual. Yes, it's certainly um, a component of that comes back to the, I guess, the the employer that they leave to transition into the real world. Obviously, in a lot of our winter codes in Australia, there's obviously, um, you know, the the athletes' association. Um, which add an extra layer of support, whether it's a governing body, um, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, there are challenges around a lot of the Olympic sports and individual sports or the sports that don't necessarily have the profile or the funding that, you know, a lot of the male-dominated winter you know, winter sports do. So, um, look, it is a, it's a daunting time. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's the individual's responsibility and, and hopefully... You know, a lot of people that come out of sport are clearly competitive, driven and motivated people. It's it's just how do you sustain, um, you know, those wonderful traits and, and refocus them. Um, and that's probably the biggest issue because they've been talented. They were born with um, the ability to, you know, run fast or, you know, whatever it might be that's led them to an elite career as an athlete. And, um, you know, during that journey they need to be, um, developing relationships with um, not just family but people outside what I call the bubble, so the bubble of their community of of professional sport and people that they know will be there with them when you know when they have retired and they they can't fulfill an elite playing commitment um, and then you know I guess once you're out if you've got that infrastructure of support beyond your family and beyond the club that you finish with or even beyond the code that you finish with, 
then you know that will hold you in good stead um, to go on the journey of discovery. And that journey of discovery you mentioned before, and you mentioned you know professional athletes, they're competitive, they're driven, they're very focused. So, do you think that athletes understand the transferability of their core skills around the competitive drive? if you like, the, the drive for perfection, high performance, that they can actually transfer that across to a whole range of different career fields. Because I'm assuming most corporates, most organisations would love to have someone like you who's been a leader, captain Australia A, so you've, you've got leadership qualities already that you can transfer into the corporate world or into a, a building company, whatever it might be. But at the same time, because of that fear factor, athletes might not actually appreciate the fact that there's a, they've actually got a lot to offer. They certainly do, um, but it's, it's refining it and knowing how to channel it completely different to something that's physical um, and being able to articulate how those traits are going to be beneficial to a potential employer is tough. Um, you know, that takes, that takes training and it takes insight to the needs of leadership in any particular business or or company um so more often than not the individual would have to have some guidance and training around even even how to articulate the benefits that their exposure in the elite sporting environment um can benefit someone's performance or i guess influence an outcome um of results for any kind of organization and i suspect that that's where a mentor who's a trusted advisor to the athlete who may not necessarily be intimately connected to the code or the organisation within which they're employed, for want of a better expression, that they can actually use them as a trusted advisor, they can lean on them, they can share issues that they may be having, but at the same time help start to articulate a bit of a playbook around, well, here are three or four things that you can walk into a, a conversation with so you know and the individual knows that you're organised, you've kind of got a bit of a game plan for what you're doing and you understand where the value might lie. Is that the sort of thing that you've experienced and is that the sort of thing that you'd suggest to athletes who are looking to transition that they do need to find one or a group of trusted mentors that they can bounce ideas off with no fear of reprisals from a club or from an organisation where they actually have to perform every week? Yeah, most certainly. Um, I... The trusted advisor or mentor um, or group of mentors is incredibly important, and um, I would I would strongly encourage um, anyone that um, you know to consider someone that they build rapport with and trust with, and they don't have to be aligned with your sport. Um, you, they very much, I think, you know, I'd almost encourage someone to have a level of independence away from a club infrastructure that you're involved with because and, and I'm someone that you know. You wouldn't want to have someone who actually only wants to mentor you because they want to get into the sheds after a game or be seen with, if you like, a well-known sports person. You'd want someone who doesn't give a monkeys about rugby or whatever the sport might be. Yeah, most certainly. And, you know, I mean, everyone, it's just, you know, you have you have chemistry with people and, and you know, anyone can realise who they get along well with and, um, and build rapport with quickly and, and trust. And you need someone that you can trust. And um, I think the the athletes need to be aware that they need to be vulnerable and they need to be able to speak openly. And it's just so impressive, you know, certainly in recent years about the openness that so many athletes have got with the challenges and the pressure and mental health problems and 
all the various associated issues with with elite sport and the stigma. Um, so it's great that there's there's now a lot of awareness around the openness. So if you can align yourself with a group of individuals, or even if it's just one person, to be able to have that regular dialogue with around what your challenges are, and, and some of those challenges during your career obviously might be the way you're interacting with your coach, or an issue that you might have with performance or selection, whatever it might be. It's it's really good to disclose that and talk about it. And then when you flip that into, um, you know, and once you build that rapport with an individual, they will know, you know, clearly where you're at in your career and, and hopefully will start and provide some insights and suggestions. You know, if they're getting, um, if, they're, if they're seeing signs that, um, you know, you're, you're, you're hamstrung by injuries or you're not getting picked and you're on the way out from a selection point of view, someone that, you know, I guess has your best interest at heart, we'll see that and hopefully give you sound guidance around how to manage it. And that trust factor, obviously, with independent advisors who are not connected to you in any way, shape or form. And where does family and friends come into this? Because clearly you've got a great family, you've got a great network of, of friends um, that that stretch really across Australia and around the world through your playing days. How have they helped over time just be confidants and being someone that you can actually pick up the phone to go and have a beer with a meal with and just say look i'm struggling with this or can you help me with with an introduction or i haven't never come across this problem before i mean that must be incredibly important just purely from a support mechanism as you continue to work through a transition yeah it's incredibly important and you know i I would clearly encourage anyone to to discuss that with their mates and um, you know talk about the problems and the issues or frustrations and concerns that they've got with um, you know I guess the the space that they're in with their elite sporting career and you know good friends will do that to you and and give you that uh, you know I guess that honest feedback and and level of support that's needed you know when you are in troubled times or if you've got a difficult decision to make it's 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 you know reassuring to have you know people that um, that you not only trust but love that you can go and talk to and, um, you know, table those concerns even if it's a little bit left field or, um, you know, I guess not um, not down the, the common route if it's retirement early or, um, you know, a change of coach or a relocation overseas or something that's um, unexpected. Um, it's great to be able to, you know, have those people close to you and, you know, certainly it's important to go and talk to them about those decisions before you make them on your own. And I suspect this is a a bit of a common theme around the things that you'd recommend, and that is the whole issue of honest feedback. I mean, I suspect a lot of sports people get told what they want to be told, especially by people outside the four walls of a club. I mean, I'm assuming over time that there's been some probably pretty tough conversations you've either had with family, whether it be your partner, whether it be your parents, your your siblings, or even your mates, where they've gone, hang on a sec, Al, you know, you need to get a grip here. What have those conversations been like? And if you look back and reflect, how helpful have they been in shaping where you've currently got to? I just think it's incredibly important for the athlete, regardless of where you're at in, in your career, is you need to own the you Sorry, you need to own the decision. So there are so many people that influence where you should play, what you should do, where you should relocate. You know, um, you know, clearly in the current elite sporting framework, there's a huge influence from player managers um, and they have, you know, 
an incredible amount of capacity to influence decision. Um, a lot of the time, obviously, there's you know the financial component that quite often sways the decision, and you know I, I do get a sense that you know a lot of people are you know guided by decisions of others. But do you think them. do you think that they're they're guided through or what's expected? Well, so like the the wrong kind of motive, in as much as it might be better for the long term transition aspirations of an athlete to actually stop playing rather than going for that next even if it's a one year contract because that's one more year they've got to devote pretty much full time to their sport as opposed to the next 30, 40, 50 years of their lives. Do you think that those sorts of visions, especially as money continues to grow in the in the certainly the larger professional sports, I would imagine that's going to become more prevalent. Yeah, it is. It's um it's challenging. So obviously um I guess the environment that we're in with with professional sport in Australia, yes um, if you look at the larger winter codes, um, and, I, and I don't mean to keep referencing those, but obviously it's um, I came out of one of those platforms being rugby, but um, you know, playing careers are getting shorter and shorter. So the opportunity to fulfil um, a long-standing career is is becoming more and more challenging. Um, so in a global game like rugby and multiple other codes, people do look at you know we're in a global marketplace at the moment. Um, and let me just stop you there, though. You mentioned this, you know, careers are shorter. Now, I've been to a game of rugby that you've played, and ladies and gentlemen, as I said in the introduction, Alastair is a relatively large man. Now, I can imagine that the idea of you being a human battering ram, for want of a better expression, for the majority of your career is not conducive to a long career on the field. So, I mean, that issue must be significant when it comes to lying back in a in your bed one night after you've just been you've played in a test match and you've been beaten black and blue and you think to yourself I've got to do this for the next five years or the next seven years and did those thoughts come into your mind where how long can I actually do this for I mean it was a while ago now Ed (laughs) but um I mean that's 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 what we're paid to do it was you know it was a a love of mine. I enjoyed it. I grew up playing the game. Um, clearly, you know, I had a I had a natural talent, but put in a huge amount of work to to get to where I got to. And you know, I didn't have a you know hugely um, hugely successful career compared to others. But you don't think um, you don't I guess have those negative thoughts when you've played. It's just about getting better. Um, what what uh, just as a matter of reference, what test cap number are you? I'm seven hundred and ninety eight. So 798 out of Lord knows how many people have played rugby for rugby in Australia over the course of the history of rugby. 798's not bad. You shouldn't be yeah. too down on yourself. No, there's um, you know there's certainly a strong history in the game, but um, you know I guess when you're living in the moment, you're not thinking, and it's it's I guess people listening to this that are in the elite space, you know, are potentially thinking, you know, my whole focus needs to be on performance and getting better, and it is, but you need to have a balance. Um, so referencing your question, Ed, around, you know, thinking how much longer can I do this, um, when you're in that space, it's about improvement. It's about how I can contribute more to the team that I'm in, how I can get the best out of myself. Um, so it's not necessarily post-game about that. That's certainly the focus while you're, while you're training, um, you know, while you're preparing and certainly, um, you know, while you're performing. Um, but it's just 
good people around you and then I guess considering at the back end of your career and it's it's hard because yes you have those um, unforeseen circumstances where quite often there is um, your careers can be cut short um, and it's completely out of your control through injury or selection or whatever it might be um, so I think when you when you have that thought um, it's pretty important to realize that you know you're in the now and it's um, only for a short period of time so uh, but it's going to be pretty important to work out what's next um, because it can end very quickly. And that end very quickly, and you mentioned this a couple of times around owning decisions because often in a franchise situation, in a whole range of different codes, uh, you know, you might get traded from one franchise to another, you might go from one cycling team to another, and that's really out of your control. Whereas the whole issue of transition, you've got complete control and ownership of that. And do you feel that uh, athletes maybe try to push that control or that ownership to others um, and use that as a bit of a crutch for when they're getting to the end of their careers and it's, they've got this oh shit moment where, crikey, they're likely to be going or transitioning out quicker than they thought and they literally have no idea what they're going to do? Yeah, so it does come back to, to owning your own decisions and um – the, the challenging part is that I guess the more infrastructure an elite athlete has around his playing career, um, probably the fewer decisions that they're actually making um, is just, a I guess, a general observation that I've got. Um, so you do need to, you need, you do need to be very aware of, of what's next and you have the, you do have the holy shit moment where you think, what am I going to do and how am I going to sustain a livelihood that I've got and you know athletes are are generally very proud people that want to be successful and are driven by results and um and I guess it becomes you know it's something that you crave so it's when you're out of the professional sporting space I guess you're, you're searching for that that um that opportunity to to get recognition and to get in and to perform and improve and to get results and um, you know sports a dynamic um, it's a dynamic career um, you know you've got your seasons it's weekend week out you get the opportunity regularly consistently to be able to perform and improve and if you have setbacks then you can climb back from that where when you come out and you're in a um, I guess in the big wide world of trying to develop a career, you're starting from a fairly low base, and, th- and I imagine that that would be contributing to the fear factor of the f- of the fact that you've been immensely successful at one very narrow facet of life. You're finishing a career when you're probably 31, 32 years of age. Your peers who haven't been professional sportsmen and women have got 10, 15 years head start on you when it comes to a career that's going to last them a lifetime. The, as their um, earning capacity is really starting to take off, a lot of professional athletes' earning capacity may actually be going backwards for a period of time. I mean, what was that mindset thought process like as as part of that whole issue of fear of what on earth is going to happen next? It's a challenging one. So I, I call it the process of discovery. And, you know, you referenced, you know, mates that went through school or university, whatever it might be, that, you know, you, you'd however long your sporting career is, that's the chunk of time that you miss in building a corporate career or a business or exploring what you want to do from an employment perspective um, if it wasn't sport. So you are behind the eight ball and, um, 
So it's it's there's a requirement for a fair amount of humility through that through that phase, and humility in the fact that you know you've you've been somewhat successful, you have been successful in your particular discipline, but um, being able to approach people and ask some you know fundamentals about support and ask for assistance. And it's really important, you know, I think athletes in general are incredibly proud people of what they've achieved regardless of where they've got to and and that's an amazing trait in, in most athletes but you need to be able to take a step back and um, and ask for help and guidance um, from the infrastructure, whether it's your mates, your family, people that you've met through, you know, your particular discipline um, and have that humility to be able to sit down and and ask for some feedback and ask for some guidance and talk to them about your challenges. Um, and then, you know, I think you need to be proactive as well to reach back in. So a lot of people walk away from their particular code and and quite often it's not necessarily that they're disgruntled, but that was a previous chapter and they want to move on and and um, and don't necessarily want to separate themselves. Yeah, from I it. guess there is an element of separation. Some want to want to remain intact with that particular code. And, and a lot want to separate themselves. But there is some infrastructure in place with many of the codes and disciplines um, in Australia and you need to, to have the, um, I guess, you know, the humility to go back and say, these are my thoughts, I need some assistance and, and you know, start and work on that plan and, and leveraging the resources that might still be there. And what about the the ability for a young player or a, a, a player who's in the process of, of building their career versus an individual like yourself when you were coming out of the Rebels program. I mean, were you open to other players sharing their ideas, their you know their thoughts around what they might do, or is that relatively uncommon in the experiences that you've had around fellow players sharing their, their thoughts, their vulnerabilities and their concerns about well, what happens if this does finish tomorrow? Um, you know, I, in my experiences, uh, certainly at the back end of my career, we had a number of, call it mature age, uh, players um, playing down here in Melbourne. So certainly, you know, we were great support for each other um, talking about what was next. And we all sort of knew that whether it was one, two, three years away that we'd be um, moving on from the club, either into retirement or potentially onto a, a different venture. So um, I guess I had a, a, a strong nucleus of guys that I was playing with at the back end of my career where um, they were doing similar things to me. So uh, we we had a bond in terms of the fact that, you know, we knew that we had to get off our backsides and go and consider what was next. And we actually, you know, it became a bit of a challenge amongst ourselves saying, you know, talking about the people that we'd met and the conversations that we'd had um and quite often we we started using one another's network, so to speak, um, to try and gain momentum. Probably selfishly, but you know the support and the the motive was there, and and the people that we interacted with knew that it was to support us with transition. And that would have been, I would imagine, that would have been pretty powerful for you guys, but it also would have been pretty powerful for the people that you were meeting, in as much as that they would have had a really clear understanding of the proactiveness that. You, as, a, as a group of uh, professional sports people were going through and being prepared to do in order to get to the other end of a transition. Or I like to think that, you know, this Wide Open Road podcast series is really all about 
the fact that it is a wide open road and even though you're ensconced in a, in a terrific career in the property game right now, who knows what's down the track. So things can change, I suspect, just as quickly in the professional space as it can in a or in the normal life as it can in a sporting life. One interesting question I've got here, Al, is to do with if you were CEO or the GM of a, of a sporting code and you could do that for one day, what are the things that you would implement or you would think about when it came to helping the athletes within your care or within your sphere to proactively attack the transition with a clear mind and not being concerned about what might happen next? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's something that I've certainly, you know, reflected on a lot. Given that I'd played at um, at three professional sporting entities, um, and you know, I think it's incredibly important, you know, the vocational balance that an elite athlete has. Um, I love hearing about, you know, programs that are in place at the moment that has um, a focus on building resilience. Um, that has a focus on vocational experience, and I think it goes beyond. Um, it goes beyond education. Um, I think there are planning elements that can be completed um, that can lay the foundation for what I call the Plan B. That's beyond study, and it doesn't necessarily have to be study. I'm not. I'm not advocating that everyone should be doing qualifications. I imagine not everybody's into that, so they might. They might want to go and do something completely different to Absolutely. a university degree or a or a TAFE course, for example. Absolutely. So, it's um, I guess it's a complement and a more balanced approach to to player welfare and development. Um, absolutely, um, clearly, it's about results and performance um, um, with the particular discipline, but it needs to be offset by a really sound infrastructure of people. Um, that are supporting that person with issues outside of their sport, uh, whether that's personal issues, whether that's around education, whether that's around vocational planning or potentially a complement of all three. And you mentioned this balanced approach and, and we, we know that you and I were lucky enough to, to connect over, over an idea called the end game, which was really all about providing with professional athletes a mechanism where they could tap into very experienced professional people from all walks of life to actually help them understand their strengths, understand their weaknesses, their interests, where they're thinking they may go and almost use that, that individual as a test case um, to to come up with a plan which they can then go out and implement. I mean, the idea of, of having uh, in-house mentors seems like a good idea, but at the same time, as we mentioned before, the ability for them to potentially feel obliged to Share certain information with the club, which could be, in con- you know, could be a significant concern of the athlete, would obviously play a part in the ability for that person to maybe share their innermost thoughts at times when they probably are really, really fearful of what on what is next, especially when it comes to injury, getting on getting on a bit with respect to age and selection form, and suddenly before you know it, you're out of the club, and you're on your own. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to I'm a huge believer that it, it does need to be independent um, and it comes back to something that I've referenced a couple of times is to taking ownership and of those decisions. So the independence piece with that support infrastructure is in, you know, critically important. So if if you're aligned with a particular club and for whatever reason you up and go to you know its competitor, then 
you'd like to think that, you know, I'd like to think that, you know, people can build a complement of people that are going to support them regardless of where they are um, and fulfilling their their obligations as an elite, as an elite athlete. So, um, yes, the independence piece is, is critically important and, you know, building that trust um, over time will certainly um, enable you know, those people to, to move with your career and, and to be there throughout the course of your career and hopefully support you with decision-making around um, around what's next and, um, you know, from a career perspective. And do you keep in touch with a lot of the people that you connected with through the Rebels and through other relationships you had with other clubs now so that they can actually look back and see how Alistair Campbell's going? Um, I can assure you, ladies and gentlemen, he's going very well. Um, but is that something that's also really important to you? Because clearly... There's a need where you actually would, you know, for want of a better expression, you need to leverage the the advice and the information, the intellectual property and experiences that they've had. But at the same time, there's an opportunity down the track to give back to them because you know, they can a see that you're doing really well and b that they've actually helped you along that journey. And there's an ability for you to give back in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I probably need to be better at that, reflecting on. You know the multitude of people that have that have been supportive for me. Um, but having said that, um, you know y- you do need to run a process where um, where clearly you show that appreciation through the course and and thank people for their time and insights. Um, in terms of proactively interacting and giving back, it's um, it's a challenging element because I'm I'm not I'm not seeking that and wanting to participate um, from a support mechanism but certainly um, over the last 12 months particularly there's been a lot of people that I interacted with in the first two three four years post-retirement that are having similar conversations um, as they had with me with with retiring athletes and and they're referring those people um, you know to reaching out to me saying can you have a cup of coffee with that guy or, or catch up and Whenever someone asks that favour and and they've you know provided me with some support, um, you know absolutely willing to and obliged to you know feel obliged to help them out and and love sitting down with um, with people that are curious around building the plan and understanding the challenges and what to be aware of and what to focus on and or potentially even just lost. Um, that's completely fine and you know because I experienced and I think most people experience so many different emotions and feelings over the course of you know a period of time and probably a few years so um, given that connection I'm, I'm more than happy to um, you know to meet with people and um, and and discuss this very issue yeah I know you've got you've got to get some other commitments shortly so we're going to wrap up relatively soon but just can we just explore the emotions and feelings for a second? I mean, what if you could describe the underlying emotion was when you actually finished your playing career and you were, you know, for want of a better expression, you were left with, well, what now? I mean, what what went through your mind and what, are the, what were the things that you recall vividly around that fear of what is next? It probably took some time to, to set in the fear factor. So I finished and, and quite often, you know, that's um, – you know, there's a lot of excitement or a lot of emotion involved in that process, whether it's positive or not. Um, and then I guess there's this period where, you know, you you, you settle down. Um, I actually had a career-ending injury that I had to 
get resolved. What so was that, that, by the way? I had a shoulder reconstruction. So I had surgery pretty soon after finishing. There's a recovery process, obviously, in that. Um, and I think to be reflecting on it, I probably thought that the transition process was going to be easier than what it actually was. And, you know, I thought you get to the point quickly where, yes, you can have a plan and, yes, you can have a network of people. And I thought landing my first official employment role was going to be easier than what it actually was. Um, So it was probably six months after I finished when the fear actually set in. And does that mean – were you relatively confident in your own ability based on – your background, your education and the proactiveness that you had that it almost gave you a false sense of security and, and you know, you'd have a conversation with a person the next day they're offering you a job. Was it sort of like that and that the fact that you just went, hmm, this actually might be a hell of a lot more difficult than I thought? Yeah, it was. It was, it was a combination of those things and um, <clears throat> it was, you know, people are quite often willing to, you know, offer support and guidance, which is absolutely wonderful. If it comes to the crunch where... The conversation needs to get more serious about employment. That's a whole different kettle of fish. So, yes, I, I thought that um, you know that I was very much employable, and um, but I also think I also had this real sense of I need to get this decision right because you know you reference to the point I'd lost eleven years of professional experience, so I didn't want to start in something that wasn't right, or I just knew wasn't going to be me from a personality point of view, or whatever it might have been, um, because, you know, I didn't. time's not on your side. You're making up for lost time, was my view. And I think a lot of people would 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 share a similar view when they come out that, you know, you are making up for lost time. So, and then I guess part of the challenge for me was, um, you know, it becomes around pride and, you know, knowing once you get to the point of knowing sort of where you're going to fit potentially from an employment point of view, because I got a lot of feedback when I started asking fairly direct questions around opportunities was you haven't got any experience. So I just can't see where I'm going to fit you in. You know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult situation to be in. So I guess the fear didn't set in until six months after that. And you just, I guess, need to, you need to stay strong and you need to stay motivated and continue with that, you know, prospecting component of working out what is next, relying on the people that you trust and love around you and um, and keeping momentum with it. Things, you know, you need to help yourself. People aren't going to, you know, um, I guess pop up one day and say, hey, I've, I've got a role for you that's that's perfect. It's it's a it's a lengthy process that you get it, you've got to go through. And, it, I mean, unbelievably consistent theme here around the focus support networks um, and really being proactive it's clearly you know a message that's come through our conversation today now Al let's take yourself back to when you were 18 years old and you were starting out on your journey as a professional sportsman if you could sit down with the 18 year old Al Campbell now what are the three things that you'd say to him about a the journey you went on but more importantly preparing for when that journey ends and another one starts, the wide open road, if you like. Um, wow, that's a lot of reflection. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> um, I would, uh, I would probably tell myself to be more disciplined in my sporting career, which probably contradicts a little bit 
what we're saying, what we're discussing. When you, here when today. you mean discipline, you're talking about the one percenters and maybe not going out to a nightclub on a weekend, those potentially, sorts of things. <laughs> potentially. Um, and I probably took it for granted. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to go from a young age through a lot of the traditional pathways in rugby. Um, I got a, a lot of enjoyment out of it, made a lot of great friends, and it just it seemed to happen. You but know. did you enjoy? I mean, did you enjoy it? I did. I did enjoy it. Uh, I guess um, you know, early on, um, you know, you're with your mates and you're on this career, and it's, it's incredibly exciting. I did get to the point in my career where I wasn't enjoying it; it was just a job, and my mindset was in what was next, and I knew that. I couldn't compete at that level and um, it was harder and harder to, to make sides and, you know, to be the front of mind for selection and that type of thing. So you do have doubts in that point, you know, your, your motivation and your disciplines, you know, hold you steady during that time. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's a difficult time to be in um, at the back end of the career. But from a planning perspective, um, I'm reasonably comfortable with what I did Um you know, the overseas experience for me was fantastic. Uh, I probably should have done, continued my studies while I was playing. I mean, I was lucky enough to get a, a large chunk of what I achieved from an educational point of view done very early in my career. And do you think that, did you not do that because you'd already had that initial post, uh, post-school post degree in the bag before you really started your professional career? And how difficult do you think that would have been if you'd had to combine professional sport with study? Oh, it's difficult. And the guys that do it, I, I take my hat off to them. Now there is far, far greater flexibility with online providers and flexibility with, with the various universities and, and education platforms that, um, that people have access to. But, you know, certainly I would have done more during my career from an educational point of view. The downtime... Um, I would have had greater disciplines to dedicate my time to to upskilling. So, um, you know, you are better prepared and you are more employable when you get to the back end. And that employability, I suspect, is is part of the fear factor. And as we wrap up, a couple of things have come through this conversation now and many things, so thank you very much for joining us. But Pleasure. A couple of the ones that I've taken out of this, which I think is really salient for all professional athletes as they – head down their own wide open road to a transition to life after sport is one, you've got to be proactive. You actually have to be the person that gets out there and does it because no one else will do it for you. The second thing is you need to own your decisions and you need to be the one that sits down and through, I guess, a process of elimination and through talking and discussing things with more experienced people who have been through that before, you've actually got to make the call yourself at the end of the day. And the third thing, you've got to use your time wisely maybe not go to the pub as much as you did when you, were, when you were younger, and you've got to be disciplined in the use of your time to ensure that when you do finish your sporting career, uh, that wide-open road is one full of joy, fulfillment, fulfillment and happiness as opposed to fear, concern, and maybe, and oh, my God, what am I actually going to do next? So Alistair Campbell, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ed. Great to talk with you.